Year-end roundup, December 31, 2023. Heading into year's end, a number of interesting stories caught my attention. Energy transfer rarely avoids conflict and is embroiled in a dispute with three pipeline developers in Louisiana who sought crossings over Gulf Run Pipeline, owned by Energy Transfer. Momentum Midstream, one of the developers with a $1.6 billion project, accused Energy Transfer of unfair trade practices. Energy Transfer has also sought temporary restraining orders against Williams Companies and DT Midstream. Pipelines routinely have to cross over or under each other as they crisscross the country. Momentum argues that without competition, Energy Transfer could control up to 80% of the pipeline capacity supplying liquefied natural gas exports in Louisiana. Energy Transfer argued that the crossings sought were numerous, threatened pipeline safety, and disregard Energy Transfer's exclusive ownership over certain stretches of land. A court ruling is awaited. Energy Transfer's well-earned bare-knuckle approach to business hasn't hurt the stock, up 27% this year. Morgan Stanley continues to report attention around the Alarian MLP Infrastructure Index, AMZI, which AMLP tracks, albeit not very well. The shrinking pool of MLPs is causing AMZI to be more concentrated and even to move beyond midstream infrastructure by incorporating USA Compression Partners, LP. At the recent rebalancing, AMZI publisher Verify retained the 12% position cap. Morgan Stanley continues to warn that AMZI might eventually relax its 12% cap or, more radically, AMLP might adopt a RIT-compliant index, which would limit its MLP holdings to 25% versus 100% now. Such changes could create turmoil in MLP names. But Vedify could also do nothing, reasoning that if investors don't like the fund's current structure, they wouldn't own it. Kinder Morgan's prescient sale of the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project to Canada's federal government in 2018, see Canada's failing energy strategy, looks better every month. Facing unexpectedly hard rock, TMX recently asked the regulator for permission to drill a smaller diameter pipe for a 1.4-mile section. The regulator turned them down, causing TMX to warn of a further two-year delay if they are forced to proceed with the wider diameter. Canadian Natural, the country's biggest oil producer, has urged the regulator to give its approval. Meanwhile, the Trudeau administration approved another $2 billion Canadian dollars in loan guarantees for a project quickly exceeding triple the cost anticipated when Kinder Morgan made its well-timed exit. A drought in Panama has impeded ship traffic through the canal in recent weeks. This is because the locks rely on supplies of inland fresh water to operate. As a result, Chile and some Asian buyers have reduced their imports of U.S. gasoline from the Gulf Coast, depressing prices. The alternative route around the tip of South America is more costly and slower. Interestingly, though, an LNG executive recently told us that Panama sets the canal tariff close to the break-even point for ships considering the alternative. For U.S. LNG exports to Asia, this suggests that the long route takes longer but doesn't cost that much more. In Oklahoma, fans of David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon will have been fascinated to see the Osage Nation win a victory against a wind farm built by Italian energy company NL. A decade-long legal fight was settled when U.S. Court of International Trade Judge Jennifer Coe Groves ruled 80 wind turbines had been illegally built. They have to be removed. You can find a more compelling telling of this unusual tale here. 
We know oil production has become more efficient over the years, but this chart of rigs versus production back to 1980 is a compelling visual. Few forecasters saw U.S. oil production reaching a new high this year, but it did. Finally, the slowdown in U.S. EV sales continues to draw unwelcome news coverage. They're still growing, but at a declining rate. EVs are also taking dealers about three weeks longer to sell than conventional cars. Sales tend to be concentrated in blue counties and states. Across the U.S., EVs have an 8% market share, but in California, it's 24%. In Michigan, it's 3%. The administration wants to require that EVs represent two-thirds of all automobile sales by 2032. Canada is planning to require all auto sales be zero emission by 2035. The EPA estimates that the typical passenger car emits about 4.6 metric tons of CO2 per year. The Inflation Reduction Act values CO2 pulled out of the ambient air and permanently buried via direct air capture, or DAC, add up to $180 per metric ton in tax credits. This is enough to have encouraged Occidental to build the world's biggest DAC plant, and CEO Vicky Holop is bullish on the technology. It looks as if public policy is to force EV adoption by making conventional cars scarce. But if you'd prefer to own just one car, not two like most EV owners I know, a regular one for long journeys, a carbon tax based on two times the DAC credit would impose a $1,656 annual cost on the owner of a gas-powered car. Some would willingly pay that for the convenience of easy refueling and assurance that inadequate charging infrastructure wouldn't force them to have their EV transported back home on a truck. I would be one of those people willing to pay the $1,656 annually. It's why a carbon tax would be a better choice than the current method of subsidies, tax credits, and regulation. It gives people a choice. <laughs>